Liminal Spaces was a six-year, welcome-funded project at Edinburgh Law School which scrutinized regulatory systems that support human health research. The vision of the project was to deliver the first-ever integrated, interdisciplinary, and cross-cutting analysis of health research regulation by confronting the gaps between documented law, relevant ethical and social theories and concepts, and research practice. To mark the end of the project in March 2021, the principal investigator, Professor Graham Laurie, sat down with members of the Liminal Spaces team to discuss their research findings. Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Liminal Spaces Project on the role of best practice in enriching effective health research regulation. I'm Graham Laurie, Principal Investigator of Liminal Spaces, and I'm very pleased to be joined by one of my colleagues from the project, Dr. Neha Sethi, who's been looking at this topic for many, many years. Welcome, Neha. Thanks, Graham. Nice to be here. Uh, as a first question, Neha, can you tell us what it was about the background to your research that brought you to focus on best practices in health research regulation? Sure. So I think there are really three core strands from my previous research that um, brought me towards interrogating the role of best practices within health research regulation. So first of all, my PhD considered the different roles and functions that rules and principles can play in decision making. I've always been really interested in understanding how people determine what to do, and I'm preoccupied with identifying ways to support actors in making difficult decisions. And as we all know, medical ethics is home to plenty of different ethical dilemmas. So my doctoral research explored the different functions that roles and principles can play for decision making. And ultimately, my research concluded that best practices represent an important but overlooked mechanism for supporting decisions um, within health research context. So the second strand of my work then um, led me to explore best practices through a kind of applied case study, which was um, the Scottish Health Informatics Programme, which you and I worked on together, Graham. And uh, that was a Scotland-wide programme aimed at better enabling the use of electronic health records for health research purposes. So you'll recall that we worked together on the information governance strand of the work, and we were tasked with developing an improved framework for um, supporting decision makers in making decisions around um, how they might share data for research purposes. And the regulatory landscape at that time was very complicated. There were lots of different um, confusing, overlapping rules and principles. And when we engaged with stakeholders, whether we were talking to researchers or data custodians or um, data processors, there seemed to be a culture of caution in terms of People were scared of sharing data because they were worried that they might be fined for inappropriate data sharing and they were worried about reputational damage for inappropriate data sharing. And this was despite the fact that often the data sharing that they were talking about was indeed lawful and it was ethically justifiable and indeed it was uh, desirable in terms of for promoting research. And so... There was a real appetite amongst decision makers for certainty. They wanted to know what boxes to tick and how to be able to discharge their responsibilities uh, appropriately. And through our work, we discovered that actually 
offering them a set of kind of overarching guiding principles, but supported by best practice examples of how they could interpret the principles that also respected the kind of legal rules that they were uh, bound to um, responsibly kind of uh, observe was a, a helpful way for them to feel confident in navigating the, the kind of regulatory landscape. So the Scottish government then took up the guiding principles and best practices that we we um, put forward. And the, finally, the kind of more recent work that's led me to explore best practices has, of course, been the work that we've done together on liminal spaces. So the liminal spaces project highlighted to me so many different examples beyond the data sharing context where actors are required to access, exercise considerable discretion and where there are real disjoints between uh, what policy asks of decision makers and what's actually feasible um, on the ground in practice. So, for example, one of my papers explores the role of best practice in the context of conducting research during global health emergencies. And so it was this kind of disjoint between policy and practice and seeking to find ways of supporting dis decision makers in times of uncertainty that led me to uh, explore the role of best practice. So before we come on to sort of explore best practice um, a little bit more deeply, can you just say, say a little bit more about some of the strengths and, and, and limitations of principle-based regulation as opposed to rule-based regulation that you've mentioned already? Of course. So rules, when they are appropriately crafted, can offer a great amount of certainty to decision makers in terms of telling them what to do in a given situation. At the same time, though, rules can be all or nothing. So they operate in an all or nothing fashion, meaning that they're either applicable or not. They can also be overly specific and prescriptive. So you may encounter a scenario that doesn't neatly fit within the remit of a particular rule or set of rules, leaving you unsure about what to do. And as we know, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's impossible for us to legislate for every single scenario. Rules can also become obsolete. They can become outdated quite quickly. And indeed, health research provides lots of examples of legal rules becoming outdated, hence the need for reform. In contrast, then, we have principles-based regulation. So these are normally articulated in more abstract language, and that means that they can offer more flexibility and breadth of scope than rules. There's more likelihood that principles can be interpreted in ways that make them applicable to different situations, and they're probably less likely to become outdated in comparison with rules. However, principles also have their limitations. For example, they're often criticised for being too abstract and too open to interpretation, which makes it challenging for decision makers to extract meaningful action guiding content from them. So in other words, it, they're so broad that it can be hard to know exactly what to do, how to apply them. They also have challenges associated with their application in terms of balancing. So when different principles conflict, it may not always be clear how we address that conflict and how we balance different principles um, against each other. So as you can see, 
both roles and principles-based approaches have their uh, respective strengths, but they also have associated challenges. So can you then explain to us how your thinking on best practice fits into all of that? Maybe you want to focus on the example you mentioned earlier on about public health emergencies. Sure. So, I mean, first of all, I guess to explain how I'm conceptualising best practices. So... I think about them as mid-level translational mechanisms. So I know that's quite a mouthful, but put more simply, I think that best practices represent a really nice and necessary compromise between rules and principles. So if you imagine a continuum with very rigid rules on one end and very abstract principles on the other, best practices are located in the middle of that continuum. So they aren't as specific as rules and they do offer a bit more flexibility, but they're more specific and grounded than principles. And they're kind of uh, representative of concrete examples of interpretations of rules and principles in practice. And so for this reason, I think they offer a very nice kind of balance between rules and principles. So in the context of global health emergencies, um, there are lots of different guidelines that we need to interpret, and there are lots of gaps between policy and practice. Uh, so understanding how you can actually implement uh, policy on the ground is a real challenge, and it was a real challenge um, coming across in kind of reports during uh, the West African Ebola virus and the Zika virus, for example. And so there's a kind of, um, in my paper, I reflected on the need for us to gather more experiences of lessons learned um, on, on the ground in the field um, from individuals uh, who were first responders for global health emergencies to um, better understand kind of what policy was asking of them and what was practically feasible. So it sounds as if there's, there's maybe two qualifications that we need to add to what you're saying about the, the role and value of best practice. One is that it's highly contingent on context. Obviously, what's best in one context won't necessarily translate to another. But also with your uh, global health emergencies example, it sounds as if best might not be particularly good if we're under lots of pressure, whether it be time, resources, crisis, etc. Um, and then we'd have to recalibrate just exactly what we can reasonably expect from practices in those kind of circumstances. Absolutely. So I think every kind of uh, regulatory approach that you suggest comes with plenty of caveats. I think the importance of context cannot be stressed enough, but actually... I think that best practices uh, allow for more context sensitivity than rules and principles because they're, if they're constructed in uh, inclusive ways, if they're um, genuinely reflective of the experiences of actors charged with interpreting the, the principles or the rules that the best practices are connected to, then there's more likely that they're going to go, they're going to um, reflect different contextual considerations and demands if you have a suite of different best practice examples you're more likely to come across an example that is um, akin to um, or at least comparable to the situation that you're seeking uh, guidance on. Um, in terms of then kind of thinking about the the limitations of best practice absolutely so one of the 
issues around determining what's best. And the research that I'm doing at the minute is kind of interrogating best practices as regulatory mechanisms in their own right. And one of the big questions that I'm kind of focusing on in the minute is what does it mean really to say something is best practice and how does that compare to other benchmarking tools that we might use for example kind of standards or guidelines but also who determines what best is in any given scenario and what does this mean in terms of power for example who does this kind of give um, power to and which voices are excluded in the conversation as well these are all really important factors to consider so it sounds like um, unlike principles and rules or standards um, that are gen generalizable and, and fairly um, uh, universal it sounds like best practice very much is contingent not just on the context but as you say who gets a voice and um, who gets heard who has an opportunity to contribute, et cetera. That, that can be really valuable in a given context, but then how do we translate those lessons about best practice in, that con in one context to other contexts which might have very, very different parameters? So I think that is an issue around uh, kind of, I think dedicating enough resources to gathering and sharing best practice. So. We need to appreciate that just as one piece of legislation and one set of rules may not necessarily be appropriate or relevant to um, a particular kind of health research context or application, that some best practices, if they're developed in the context, for example, of uh, information sharing, data sharing, may not necessarily uh, be relevant to the context of um you know, ex experimental therapies. So I think that's a, a kind of challenge that we're going to encounter regardless of the, the, the regulatory mechanism that we're trying to um, uh, trying to kind of in, include within the, the regulatory ecosystem. I think there are some important lessons, though, that can be distilled from the value of, of best practice in terms of kind of the spirit of knowledge management um, and kind of knowledge transfer. Um, we know from uh, organisational management, which has been looking at best practice for, for years, the value of sh and the importance of sharing lessons, not only good lessons, but also uh, lessons learned about bad experiences and what hasn't worked um, in particular scenarios. Uh, that's really important for innovation and for um, kind of a healthy, a healthy, reflective ecosystem. It's interesting you say that reflective ecosystem because that was exactly the word that was going through my head, or reflexivity. It sounds as if in order for your approach to best practice to work well as a regulatory device, you need to have reflexivity on well, what are the circumstances, what is the context in which we are attempting to identify and apply best practices, and also the transparency and making sure that you share the the conclusions from that reflexive, reflexive exercise on why did you think these were these were the, the, the best practices that were relevant and how did you justify that? So it's, in other words, it, it can't just be a black box exercise. It's got to be one that's fully transparent and reflect um, sort of really quite careful consideration of ex all these these factors that you're mentioning. Absolutely. So the, the research that I'm doing at the minute is focusing on how we can offer that reflexivity in transparent and open way. So I'm trying to understand what are actually the processes that are involved in determining which 
practices are considered to be exemplary and which aren't? What is the kind of status and power that's given to those examples? Um, I'm also determining, as I mentioned, who gets to decide what best practice is in a given context. Um, we also need to think, for example, about big tech companies at the minute. So we need to ensure that best practice is not being used as a kind of shorthand for self-regulation and kind of promulgating the opacity that these these firms are often accused of operating within, where they kind of have their in-house codes of practice, or this is best practice, but um, we don't really know how those decisions have been made. Uh, there are also issues, I think, around how we effectively transfer knowledge not only within institutions but across different institutions. Um, so research into knowledge transfer tells us that there can be real cultural challenges around accepting, accepting practices that have been developed by others. So this might be due to the kind of it wasn't made here mentality um, but also there can be kind of um, translational issues of translating different practices that may work better in, as you mentioned, in one context compared to in another context. So reflexivity is a really, really important aspect of um, kind of the, the, the success of, I think, the work that I'm trying to do in terms of um, advancing best practice as a regulatory mechanism in its own right is very closely tied to uh, exercises around open and transparent reflexivity um, and again issues around ensuring that we're able to revise in an ongoing way if this is kind of a living breathing ecosystem that we're able to constantly fold in new lessons so what might be considered best practice right now may not with the addition of new knowledge and experiences may not be considered to be best practice in five months time so how do we develop and generate systems that enable us to continually reflect upon whether best practice needs to be revised and then what are the mechanisms that we can put in place to ensure that the best practices are constantly revised and that that knowledge is accessible, um, is, is widely accessible across different uh, organizations. Now for listeners who are interested in some of these ideas, um, in our publications that are all open access on our website, we talk about the importance of regulatory feedback loops. And in our handbook from uh, Cambridge, it looks at um, many, many different aspects of health research regulation. We also uh, promote the idea of a learning health uh, <coughs> research regulation system. So if you're interested in that, you can look at those publications. Um, Neha, can we move on to another concrete example? Um, I'm interested in the challenges of experimental therapies. So you know, are these, are they research? Are they treatment? Are they both? Does it matter? And what do you think your um, analysis of best practice says about that, that particularly tricky sort of liminal space, those gray areas between research practice um, and um, innovation? Thanks for asking that, Graham. It's a really good question and one that I'm continually mulling over. So I've considered some of this in a paper in Law, Innovation and Technology, um, where I highlight the problem of increasingly blurred boundaries between what counts as research and what counts as treatment and innovation. So uh, medical treatment traditionally has been considered to be aimed at kind of primarily focused on improving the individual patient, so focusing on delivering benefits to a patient. 
whereas research is typically being conceptualized as um, having the goal of generating new knowledge. So any benefit to research participants is secondary. Um, and in the paper, I kind of extend the discussion to suggest that medical innovation, which is increasingly used, um, but an increasingly kind of nebulous term, because we're not actually sure what it means. So if you look up uh, literature around innovation in general, there is so much um, debate around what innovation means. It kind of means everything and nothing at the same time. But in the medical context, it's referred to inconsistently. And sometimes medical innovation or kind of associated terms like experimental therapies, um, experimental treatments, innovative treatments, these terms, this cluster of terms are often used interchangeably with both research and treatment. So it can be quite confusing for decision makers to know how to categorize their different practices. And the distinction between these different activities actually matters a lot because research and treatment can, um, and increasingly innovation, trigger quite distinct regulatory pathways. So whether you categorize something as research or treatment will determine the level of um, ethical kind of scrutiny, the level of legal scrutiny and regulatory oversight that different activities will be subject to. So this can either stifle important activities that ought to go ahead, but it can also potentially uh, overlook risks associated with certain activities and allow them to go ahead when they ought not to. So um, actually, categorizations do matter within regulation. So the approach kind of that I'm suggesting that might help us uh, uses the concept of, of liminality to emphasize the importance of enriching our understandings and developing more holistic understandings of innovative practices. So what they mean and how they relate to research and treatment and I suggest that actually what we need to do is think about accepting the fact that medical innovative practices can simultaneously constitute treatment and research so actually I'm saying maybe we need to collapse the the kind of conceptual distinctions that we have um, and to do some more empirical work that allows us to develop a more holistic understanding of what it means to operate in the kind of shared spaces of research, treatment and innovation. And this necessitates, I think, more acknowledgement within policy, within regulation of the experiences of different actors in health research regulation. And particularly in the context of innovation, the duality of roles that can be performed by individuals. So, for example, you can have the clinician who is focused on um, kind of the best interests of their patient, who's simultaneously conducting research um, and wanting to generate generalizable knowledge. And you can have the kind of the, the patient who's also acting as a participant because they're because they're uh, participating within research. So I think this duality of rules is not adequately captured. Um, and I think uh, liminality can can help us to kind of um, explore those experiences and fold them in. You mentioned kind of feedback loops and the importance of um, 
the, the kind of regulatory ecosystem. So I think these need to be explored in that regard. And then to move on more specifically about the value of best practices, I think developing and sharing best practices around innovation um, and how that relates to research and treatment can be helpful because it can offer some much needed guidance to individuals where regulatory gaps and uncertainties exist. So we need to develop communities of best practices around um, how the not only the kind of good experiences but the the bad experiences what are the challenges how are different actors today actually making decisions about how they categorize their activities and how they um how they deal with the challenges of this kind of dualities of uh, the conflicts that can occur before a clinician for example of um being a clinician but also conducting research yeah, I think if I understand you correctly, Neha, what you're, you're suggesting here is if, if we look at these um, these different um, elements of, of, of the enterprise, whether it be treatment, innovation or you know, experimentation, holistically um, as processes of change and processes towards you know, a, a commonly um, wished for objective, then that would help to address one of the concerns that I have about best practices, which is this kind of context specific nature. Because if, you, if we don't do that, then we can say, well, what's best for innovation is not necessarily best for research. And what's best for research is not necessarily best for experimentation. So if we, if we fragment the, 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 uh, the consideration of what, what best practice is and what, how it works, then we're arguably going to get three different answers as to what's best. Whereas what you seem to be suggesting is if we see it more holistically, then at least that's the beginning of a conversation about well, what's at stake and also you know, what do we think counts as best and how do we justify that? Absolutely. And thanks for, I mean, you, you summarised it beautifully, but thanks also for raising the point about dialogue. So I think that's what's incredibly important um, in terms of a kind of a feature that best practice enables. It's that it promotes and provokes dialogue and engagement with all of these issues so you need to deliberate different individuals need to deliberate they need to consult with different stakeholders um, in order to identify what best practices are and in order to identify the different justifications for selecting uh, one example as best practice at the expense of others um, and yeah absolutely think that best practice can help um, kind of overcome that that fragmentation challenge that you mentioned as well between the different activities. So one final uh, question for you, Neha. What are your take-home messages for our listeners about best practice then in the context of health, health research regulation? So I think first and foremost that best practices are uh, yet underappreciated but very important and potentially very valuable regulatory mechanism within health research regulation. Um, I think the other message I'd want to say is that they offer a helpful compromise between rules-based and principles-based approaches. I think we need to acknowledge the fact that best practices can only be valuable if they are constructed in inclusive, transparent and robust ways and that they also have their limitations. So you inevitably, decision makers will inevitably always need to exercise discretion. We can't always uh, kind of provide best practices for every scenario. Think about, for example, um, context of AI or uh, other kind of emerging areas of health 
research where there are kind of regulatory uh, gaps at the minute. We don't necessarily know what best practice is or means. There, there, there may be situations where there are indeed no practices and all we're doing is building up the practices at the minute. So best practices are not a panacea, but I think that they do definitely merit reflection. And if you are considering developing kind of communities of best practice, then being reflexive is incredibly important, not only in terms of the, the factors I mentioned around who are you giving power to, which voices are you including or excluding, um, how do you decide what best is, but also in terms of asking yourselves what is the job that we're asking this regulatory mechanism to do why would we be relying on best practices what what kind of functions are we expecting best practices to perform are they the most appropriate regulatory mechanism or indeed do we need something more uh, specific and more rigid like a rules-based approach or actually we don't have the examples so we need to focus on a principle-based approach so uh, including best practices within your considerations of um, how to best regulate, but not as the only regulatory tool at your disposal. Excellent. Thank you very much, Neha, for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Liminal Spaces podcast. To learn more about the project and to listen to the full series, please visit us at www.liminalspaces.ed.ac.uk. This has been a production of Edinburgh Law School at the University of Edinburgh.